As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now is George Sarafalos, Global Head of FX Research over at Deutsche Bank. George... Let's start with that dollar strength. What is the number one dominant driver of what's taking place, not just in Europe, but across Asia too? Hi, John. So it's, it's clearly historic times in FX. Uh, and I'd say what's going on is that valuate, valuation anchors are being lost. So, you know, t- you take Europe, for example, producer prices are now up 40% over the last 18 months. Um, what does that mean for purchasing power parity, for, for how much co- competitiveness has been impacted. Um, the market doesn't really know and is, is, is trying to grapple with, with that question. Um, you mentioned the yen. Um, the BOJ has been doing the Fed equivalent of a trillion of QE um, in recent months. It's now starting to pick up again. It, it's basically following a policy of, of neglect for the yen. It hasn't spoken about the yen um, for, for, the last, for the last two months. Uh, and, and I think if you add all these things together, um, the dollar is ending up as the safe haven of choice um, by default because there's all these issues in the rest of the world. And I think the, the critical point is it becomes very difficult to understand and calibrate fair value given these huge moves we're seeing in energy prices, um, it changes in policy, um, for example, out of Japan. And obviously, we've got the COVID situation in China. When do we reach a breaking point, George? And I speak as we start reaching levels that perhaps were last seen or the pace of which were last seen uh, in 2020, which prompted Federal Reserve intervention. Yeah, so some currencies were even exceeding those and going back to to the 1980s, uh, the the huge 1984 overshoot um, back then um, kept going. It, It actually, currencies back then decoupled from rates, even as Volcker stopped, um, the dollar kept going, even as the U.S. external accounts turned. And it became a bit of a self-fulfilling um, situation where, where, again, valuation anchors were lost. 
And what it took to turn things um, was coordinated intervention. And you had the Fed starting to sound a bit more jittery and then obviously the, the Plaza Accord. Um, I still think we're far away from that, not least because dollar strength at the moment is helping the US inflation story. Uh, and it is very likely um, that um, core goods inflation in the US, I think, will move sharply lower. Um, so one thing that will be able to shift things is, is if we get a Fed pivot um, that's clearly too early. Um, that's on the US side just an easing of these stagflation fears. Uh, but then, of course, uh, we've got the issues outside of the US, both in Europe um, and Asia. It's very difficult over the next few months to see these fundamental issues, this uncertainty, um, go away. Uh, and as such, uh, I think it's very difficult to, to call for a big turn in the dollar um, as things stand. Well, given that, George, what's going to stop the euro from going to 90, uh, 0.9 uh, on the dollar? What's going to stop the yen from going to 150, as we were talking about yesterday? What's going to be the pivot point for some of these currencies, as there is not necessarily uh, some sort of circuit breaker? So I think there's two things that can prevent um, extreme moves. I, obviously, in Japan, you are seeing extreme moves because the Bank of Japan via its policies actually encouraging yen weakness. But speaking of Europe, there's two things. Um, number one, the ECB becoming more aggressive, becoming more assertive, talking about the currency. Um, and I don't agree with this argument that if the ECB hikes more, it's going to be negative for the currency because it hurts growth. You are actually seeing the euro hold up much better than what one would have expected, given that we've now started okay. to price 75 bips, for example. So I think the ECB is one. And the right fiscal policy response as far as the energy situation goes. And that's where the differences between the UK and the euro area become a bit more interesting, for example. Okay, so George, is essentially what you're saying, the ECB can support the euro by hiking, but that is not necessarily the case for the Bank of England. So the ECB central banks can slow down the moves, but it's not interest rate differentials are not the dominant drivers. And, and we're seeing that the ECB is helping slow down the euro depreciation. But I think to see a big shift, you need a resolution um, on the energy situation. Now, if you, if you go over to the UK, um, I'm still surprised by the lack of urgency from the Bank of England in terms of this communication of how much more um, they can do. Um, you've got an inflation picture that's pretty much um, the worst in the developed world. Um, we are very likely to get very, very sizable fiscal announcements in place that may help inflation in the near term but they're also going to be highly stimulative. They're not going to allow for any correction on, on the demand side. So I worry in the UK policy alignment between the fiscal authorities and monetary authorities is, is not there. Um, and this in itself um, may be quite harmful for the currency. How harmful? I mean, what probability would you put around cable at parity? So um, we, we wrote a report where we're looking at all these drivers. We're looking at the balance of payments dynamics in, in the UK. And what stands out really is versus 10 years ago, the position is much more vulnerable. You've got a negative net international investment position. You've got a very large current account deficit. You've got real rates that are still very low. Um, and for me, over the next two or three weeks, it's all about policy credibility and alignment. Um, and if we go down the route of a very large unfunded, untargeted uh, fiscal stimulus, and the Bank of England, for example, disappointing market expectations and not hiking by 75 basis points, not showing a greater sense of urgency. I do worry the funding of this very large deficit um, the UK has with the rest of the world um, can be challenged. And you can see um, very extreme levels um, for the pound, as you have in the past when the UK has struggled. 
to attract foreign financing. In the Euro region in particular, you were talking about how the appropriate fiscal policy could support the Euro. And I want to go back to that. What does the appropriate policy look like, given the fact that a lot of households are really struggling? This is not like $5 a barrel of gasoline or $5 a gallon gasoline in the United States. This is way more extreme, way more punitive for households over in Europe. Can they not offset it at all? And if they do, is there something that's prudent that could still support the Euro? It's a really important question. And what I would say is it's a fine um, needle to thread, so to speak, in that, yes, you have to target policy in terms of preventing some of the pass through, especially for the lower income households. But at the same time, you have to allow price signals to work um, and demand to drop. And uh, I, I have to say, I think the European policy response over the last few months has been quite impressive in that front, in that you have seen the situation is very extreme in terms of the price rises. But you are seeing demand management, um, industrial demand in Germany for gas has dropped by 20%. At the same time, the risk support for the low income households, but fiscal policy is not blowing out um, in terms of being completely unfunded. Um, we've obviously got this very uh, significant energy summit um, happening on Friday, but I would say ultimately the policy response that helps is one that allows the market signals to work, but preventing some of the more extreme um, downside risks. And Europe is heading in that direction. Finally, George, if we could leave Europe and head back to Asia, because you've mentioned the Japanese yen a few times, flirting with 145 to the dollar this morning, the weakest level we have seen going back to August of 1998. And you've also alluded to the fact that the Bank of Japan is sticking with its motto. We're going to keep it easy. We're going to keep yield curve control. Is there a level on dollar yen that you think would represent a breaking point for Kuroda? I don't really think there is. Uh, I, I think from a policymaking and a macro perspective, what matters is the speed. Um, so if, if you get a, a extreme disorderly move, so to speak, then it becomes either easier to invoke uh, the G7 and G20 agreements on disorderly market moves. But the reality is, even though the yen move has been extremely large, uh, 25% this year, it's actually been fairly orderly. And it's been aligned at the end of the day with what the BOJ has been doing, uh, which, which is easing policy. So I find it very difficult um, to see a situation where any sort of intervention will be credible from a market perspective. At the end of the day, what's needed is for the BOJ to pivot. Now, that may happen um, if Kuroda, for example, uh, when his term expires, you get a governor that's um, got a slightly different approach, obviously backed by the government. Um, but as things stand, I'm not sure intervention um, will, will be credible. And the bar for that to happen is, is very high uh, in the sense that the moves will need to be highly disorderly. And at the moment, they're big. Uh, but um, they're not especially volatile. They're highly intuitive. It makes perfect sense. And that's why I think we're all struggling with this idea that the BOJ has any grounds to complain right now, George. George, thank you for your time. And what a world you guys are in right now in foreign exchange. George Saravalos there of Deutsche Bank. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. 
four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Business Gold Card. Joining us now is Margie Patel, Senior Portfolio Manager at Allspring Global Investments. Margie, the Nasdaq Composite's down almost 9% over the last seven days. The last seven trading days, the S&P 500 over the same period is down about 7%. Are you ready to buy this equity market yet? Well, no, I think actually what we've had is about a reversal, about 50% of the rise we've had in those indexes since their lows in June. Uh, but I think we're really in a trading range with a downward bias uh, because of the backdrop. The Fed is very much committed to raising rates. Globally, you can see economies all around the world are slowing down, and that's really not a market that says we're on the verge of a uh, dynamic rebound in equities. So are you just moving more into cash? How do you manage in terms of some of this bearishness at a time? when there still is uncertainty and still a potential investment case. Uh, I don't think cash is really uh, all that attractive at this level uh, because there is a chance the Fed might realize that they're being too aggressive, in my opinion, and uh, that could change things. So really, we're just trying to find companies that are reasonably priced, that have the possibility of continued earnings growth, which I think will be pretty hard to find over the next year. We're thinking earnings are going to decelerate a lot. So PEs are down, but with decelerating earnings, that still says a lot of stocks could go down. So trying to, to see where stocks still have a growth path and aren't too puffed up based on yesteryear's uh, idea of how fast the economy is going to grow. And how do you factor in the strength of the dollar into your thinking about these multinational companies? Um, you know, I've never really found that a uh, big help in, in making money in stocks because often the market will look through dollar strength. I think what it really tells you is that it reflects the strength of the U.S. economy compared to Europe, compared to emerging markets, compared to China. So it says to me that we're still the best place to invest, and the dollar is really a reflection of that. Even at our rates today, we still see money coming in from foreigners because we're probably still the best economy in the world to buy. When does that become a headwind, though, Margie? And this is something people are increasingly asking. As they, as they talk about coordinated intervention to some of the currency differentials. When does the dollar become a liability for U.S. companies that are trying to sell their goods overseas? Uh, well, I think that's really what you're seeing in a trend for slower growth and acknowledgments from any companies of where they saw rapid growth, say, in emerging market. They're now seeing that scaled back. So I think it's really part of the backdrop of earnings slowing down around the world, growth slowing down around the world. So therefore, it's going to be you're going to have to be more choosy in finding companies that can uh, get through a period of very low growth. We haven't had that in quite a while. And here we have everything coming together. Uh, and they're really all negative as far as future growth. Amagi, the bulk of your portfolio is in equities. We used to talk to you almost exclusively about fixed income. I wanted to squeeze a little bit more in on fixed income if we can. We're seeing signs that sovereigns in Europe are willing to take on uncapped liability and transfer massive risk away from the consumer to offset some of the pain sparked by energy issues across the continent. What do you think the consequences of that are going to be? Uh, well, when you have that kind of massive innovation, the, re the result is always the same, which is uh, those policies have a way of backfiring. Uh, for example, I think in England they did have some price caps a few years ago under Theresa May. That hasn't worked out very well. Uh, so I think that uh, it's really a negative for consumers and negative for those economies. Again, we, we are lucky enough that we don't have that here. Again, coming back to the case, our growth looks better than, than worldwide. Margie Patel of Allspring Global Investments, thank you. 
So much of the inflation story has been oil and gas, and a lot of people have been calling for oil prices to surge to new record highs earlier this year. One person pushed against them. He said, you guys are all wrong. You underestimate the power of a lack of demand as the global economy slows. That one person was Ed Morse, Citigroup head of commodities research uh, for the for the world. And, and he came out and he said, no, prices are going down. Ed Morse, you were correct. We have seen that and we have seen it steadily uh, going even with a potential supply cut from OPEC plus. How closely is this particular energy story tied to the slowdown that we're seeing in China? Well, it's got a lot to do with it, but a lot less to do with it than people really think, because Chinese demand was really peaking, and we didn't expect it to go anywhere this year. We had a, a very low number, a modest 100,000 barrel a day uh, increase in Chinese demand. They, they came back to where they had been through the recovery, and there was no place further to go. They had already cut back on diesel demand, on gasoline demand. Their one bright spot was petrochemical feedstock. And as we know, a lot of that comes from the natural gas liquids pool rather than from the oil pool or the refinery pool. Uh, China has, however, really influenced the market. They are so concerned with energy security that they basically stopped exports. And that has had reverberations around the planet. The one thing that, that we missed, uh, and the world as a whole missed, was that uh, when we have natural gas prices getting as high as they've gone on a content, a BTU content basis, prices for gas, net gas, are higher than prices for diesel. At a time when the world was moving closer to diesel, we had demand up about a million barrels a day as a result of that switch. China cut off their exports of about 700,000 barrels a day of diesel. They did that last September. They haven't lifted it at all. So we, we're having, you know, some of what's happening in the planet is really a result of China, but I say it's more of China policy than it is of Chinese demand. Ed, the fact that you say that it is less to do with China than people think is a pretty dire statement with respect to economic activity in the United Kingdom, in the European Union, as well as the United States, at a time when all regions are looking to support households as they continue to maintain their demand. So can you explain a little bit more why demand is falling off so much more than people seem to think from the data at hand? So on the, we, have the, we have the best data in the world from the United States. People saw, started seeing, we started seeing at the end of March, beginning of April, that U.S. demand really had come off and had come off as we got out of winter and as we got into the driving season. And week after week, and even if you do it on a four-week moving average basis, from March to today, U.S. demand has gotten lower and lower than it was a year ago. Total demand in the month of August was close to 2 million barrels a day, lower than it was in August 2021. Um, 1 million barrels a day of that was in the transport fuel business, 300,000 in diesel, which reflects what's happening volumetrically in the retail market. The rest, the remaining 700,000 a day, was in the gasoline market, and that's because people simply decided to drive less. And we have survey data that prove that vehicle miles traveled have gone down. So, you know, get high prices and people re react to that by not buying as much. And that's, that's kind of a lesson potentially for Europe. We've seen effectively conservation working as a result of consumer response to high prices uh, across across the United States without a recession other than the technical recession. But, you know, we're seeing growth in the labor market that's pretty formidable. And even so, with more money in people's pockets, people are driving less. That is a lesson. If you let the market work to some degree, people are going to conserve. So one of the big experiments that the world, Europe in particular, is confronting is how much will people be allowed to conserve 
The other experiment is what's going to happen politically as people get more concerned about inflation in their pocketbook and jobs than they do about Russia and Ukraine. Uh, we have some elections coming up. In a couple of weeks, we have an election in Italy. And we'll see what the consumer rebellion might be uh, against where these high consumer prices are. Ed, just as you're speaking, we're hearing from the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen talking about how the EU is going to propose a mandatory target for reducing peak electricity. Clearly, the kind of response uh, from government you're alluding to here. Yet, as Europe faces this winter, there is a sense that this isn't just going to be a this winter problem. We could see years of restricted supply in Europe. So when you're trying to model out natural gas prices and what they could look like, how persistently higher could they be? And is that something ultimately that the consumer is just going to have to tolerate? Yes, the question is not whether they're going to say these prices are going to stay higher, but how much higher will they stay? Europe is moving back to thermal, uh, to, to fossil fuels, both to natural gas and coal. Um, they've had a double hit this summer because a lot of nuclear reactors, particularly in France, had to be shut because of a lack of water for cooling the nuclear plants. Those will almost certainly be coming back. But as we look at Europe's move back to natural gas and the world's response, it will be somewhere between 2025 and 2027 that we'll see the prices in Europe coming back to where they were at the beginning of 2021. And one of the major difficulties that Europe is confronting is that it's not only seeing consumers hit in the pocketbook, but it's seeing job losses in energy-intensive industries, and we're seeing those energy-intensive industries migrating. And where are they migrating to? Places in the world where energy costs are lower, namely the United States. We've seen the migration of fertilizers yeah. uh, into the U.S. from Europe, and we're seeing other energy-intensive industries like zinc and aluminum smelting uh, slowing down or closing altogether. Well, but to that point, Ed, about migrating to the United States, what is the risk that these higher energy prices in Europe, the crisis there, is going to bleed through in a material way to prices here in the United States? Well, the risk is not on the net gas side directly. It's actually through thermal coal and what's happening to thermal coal prices. When we got to $9 uh, and closer to $10 natural gas prices again, it wasn't because of our production. It wasn't because of our imports from Canada. It was because the price of coal had shot up uh, as Europe bought more coal, as China bought more coal, and the $9 price of natural gas now $8, but that was equivalent to where thermal coal prices were. And now we're seeing thermal coal prices coming off again for a variety of reasons. And with that, U.S. nat gas. So U.S. nat gas is going to be seeing a significant increase in supply. We're going to see some boost in our LNG exports, but those are capped. We, you can only produce as much LNG as you have liquefaction capacity, and it doesn't grow overnight. And that's the reason why Europe's going to have to wait till mid or later in the decade to get to the point where there'll be enough nat gas, particularly from the U.S. and Qatar, that's going to be able to replace that Russian natural gas. We also have to remember that the Russian game plan is not completely over. It's hard to second guess what Mr. Putin will do. He specifically said what they're doing on oil and gas, but particularly gas at the moment, is a reflection of price caps being discussed. Mm -hmm. um, Russia's going to be, you know, running out of places to sell gas pretty soon. Uh, European destination of gas from Russia, other than a bit of liquefied natural gas, can't go 
anywhere else in the world. There's only a certain modest level of switching they can do to sell gas by pipeline to other countries. Those are mostly former Soviet Union countries, and their their demand is limited. So uh, the uh, uh, 30 BCM of uh, of NAT gas that Europe is uh, being provided for by uh, by Russia is not going to be replaced by another market. So at some point, uh, Russia might say, hey, we want to maximize the revenue we're getting from natural gas. It would not be surprising if they turned back the flows on natural gas as we got to the end of the injection season in Europe, uh, got to the point when Europe is going to be growing storage, when prices will be high for the winter and Russia will make a lot of money on it. So that's one thing to watch. Just fascinating stuff, Ed, as we all try and work out whether we have to do this again next winter. Ed Moss of Citigroup. Ed, thank you, sir. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. We get lucky this morning. Joining us now is Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the book, The Bill of Obligations, coming out early next year. Richard, always great to catch up with you, sir. I've seen the latest article in Foreign Affairs magazine, the title, The Dangerous Decade. I think we need to start there, Richard. Why is this decade going to be so much more dangerous than what we saw in the previous decade? It's a fair question. The, the short answer is that it's an imperfect storm. You've got three things taking place simultaneously. One, you've got the reemergence of, of large-scale, historic-scale geopolitical tensions between Europe and the United States on one hand, and then with Russia, with China, also with Iran. Secondly, you've got all sorts of global challenges, such as climate change, uh, infectious disease, where there's a large gap between the threat and the willingness of the world to come together. And then thirdly, all of this is taking place against the backdrop of a United States that's divided, distracted, both figuratively and literally at war with itself. And there's a real question about whether the United States will be willing and able to play the significant role that it's played for the last three quarters of a century. So you add those three things up, and I would say anyone watching this show has to assume that going forward, there's going to be far more turbulence, far more instability in the world than looking backwards. From a business uh, case, what does this mean in terms of doing business in China, of the increasingly tight relationship between China and Russia, and what kind of international presence is to be expected given some of these backdrops? 
Well, for Russia, so long as Mr. Putin's in charge, you've got to assume there's draconian sanctions. I think with China, you've got to assume at a minimum that there's more restrictive sanctions in anything dealing with technology in either direction. Plus, I also think there's going to be a major policy conversation in, in the West, also not just in Europe, but in places like Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, the United States, about whether it's wise to remain so dependent on the ability to export to China and import from China. You would have thought that one of the lessons of the of the current conflict with Russia is that any form of economic dependence, not just energy, energy dependence, confers leverage on the other side. We are now providing China with enormous potential leverage should, for example, over the next few years there be a conflict over Taiwan. So I think you've also got to expect a slightly more downsized overall economic relationship with China. And the sort of thing you're seeing in the United States, the CHIPS Act, uh, bringing home certain types of productive activity, I think is a, is a reaction both to the, the turbulence of supply chains, plus, again, growing uncertainty about relations with countries like, like China. Is this a government uh, option or is this something that each business has to decide for themselves? And I ask this because a lot of people have been surprised that there hasn't been more exodus from China, from manufacturing there by U.S. businesses, given some of the fragilities exposed by the pandemic and by some of the increasing tensions. No, it's a good question. I think some businesses are living in la-la land. They're essentially hoping against hope. They don't face a much more uh, dis- disturbed environment politically with China, that China doesn't face all sorts of internal issues. But uh, I would think that any business now needs to right-size, which i.e. downsize, uh, its relationship with China. It can't assume that there's going to be business as usual there. Again, anyone in the technology space for sure, but even those beyond sensitive technologies have to assume that if there's geopolitical friction with China, and you'd have to bet there's a decent chance there it will be, Sanctions will be introduced that will be broader than technology. So I think any business that doesn't have a plan B and hasn't begun to move towards it uh, vis-a-vis China is putting itself into a position of distinct vulnerability. Obviously, Richard, and it's Kaylee in New York, from the perspective of the United States, they are looking outward at China and the geopolitical tensions that you are highlighting at the same time that there is a sense that there's a very real democratic crisis inward, internally, in the United States. And I'm just wondering if kind of threats to democracy domestically hamper the United States' ability to tackle those geopolitical challenges moving forward, especially when midway through the decade you say is going to be so dangerous, we could have a new president inaugurated. You're absolutely right, Kelly. You know, we're going to have a new president at some point. Uh, What we don't know any longer is what that president's going to do when it comes to the U.S. relationship with the world. I say that because in the old days, no matter who was elected president, you had a pretty good sense of the parameters of what this individual would do. That's not true anymore. We now have the potential to lurch dramatically. That means our allies are much more uh, guarded about being so reliant or dependent on us. It means our foes may see may see opportunities. What we did in Afghanistan, I expect, did influence Mr. Putin to do what he did in, in Ukraine. I think it's, it could be harder to drum up resources for sustained American involvement in the world because so much uh, of our attention is going to be turned uh, inward. I expect in certain areas uh, the partisanship will infect 
foreign policy as it has. You're going to see, for example, a very rough debate over uh, Iran, potentially, if the United States tries to re-enter the agreement with it. So going forward, it's going to be harder to conduct a, a consistent foreign policy against this backdrop, much less promote democracy in the world. How are we going to say, be like us, given what's happening with our politics, given the fact that life expectancy is going down in, in the United States? We've had all the problems with lost academic time because of uh, how we manage COVID. So the American model, shall we say, is not quite the shining city on a hill that we would like it to be. Richard, just to finish up then, what's the solution? Do you think we need new institutions to come to some kind of collective agreement in the West on how to deal with these issues? What is the solution? First thing, I never, ever, ever use the word solution. These are not problems that are going to be solved or fixed. If we're lucky, we'll be able to manage them uh, more than and less. And yes, to some extent, that might mean new solutions. It might mean different pol- new, new, new uh, institutions, new policies, new behaviors. But there's no solutions. History doesn't doesn't offer those uh, you know, frequently. And we're not going to get solutions now. And that's a worrying conclusion to this conversation, Richard, but a bit of a reality check for everyone too. Richard Haas, thank you. I think Council on farm relations. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.